Uh, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your Spirit's presence here this morning. Thank you for the worship that we have already been privileged to engage in through song, through scripture, through prayer. And we pray that now as we continue to worship by opening up your word and seeking to hear from you, we pray that our hearts would be humble before your word. Pray that you'd empower me by your spirit with your grace. And may your son be praised as a result of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1997, my wife and I were newly married, and we had a plan. The plan was that I was going to finish up some graduate work. We were going to transition to a ministry opportunity that was in front of us. And then we were going to kind of settle down and enjoy the first couple years of our marriage together. Then, when we deemed the time to be right, we were going to grow or try to grow our family the traditional way. It seemed like a good and reasonable plan, kind of similar to what a lot of our peers were doing, until the plan didn't work. Several years after we began to try to grow our family the traditional way, our baby room was still empty. We were among the many American couples who struggle with the painful and usually unexpected pain of infertility. It was a hard season for us. It was obviously not expected. It wasn't the script that we had written for our lives. We were learning firsthand the truth of the proverb that man's heart is planning his way, but it's God who's directing our steps. And what we were learning and what we already knew, but we're learning even more intensely, was that the script God writes for our lives is always different than the one we write for ourselves. It's always wiser, always better, but it's also harder It's harder because when we write the script for our lives, we tend to focus on the good things. Our chapters are chapters of success and accomplishment and pleasure and joy, and rightfully so. I mean, those are the things we want as we live our lives. But while God certainly includes much of that, he also recognizes that some of the most important themes in the script he's writing for our lives are themes that include adversity and trial and pain and and loss. God is doing something bigger than simply giving us our best life now. God is concerned with his glory and our good from an eternal perspective. And so we need to begin to think, how do we view life in this broken world through the lens that God has? Now the rub is, while God is using the adversity in our lives for good, the evil one would seek to use those very same experiences as a means of disrupting our faith in and faithfulness to Jesus as we journey. And that's why it's critically important that we as followers of Jesus think well about and respond well to the experience of trial in our lives. And so the question to ask as we begin is, how are we doing with that? How are we thinking about Trial, adversity, temptation, struggle. And how are, we, how are you responding to it in your life? Well, thankfully, God loves his people. And so throughout scripture, over and over again, in many different ways, he provides us the exact insight we need to think well about and respond to the trials and adversity that are part of life in a broken 
world, in a fallen world. And our text this morning is one such passage, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. As you turn there a bit of context, this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus and pastor of the church in Jerusalem. We learn in verse 1 that he's writing to Jewish followers of Jesus who were living outside of Palestine. And there were a lot, there's a lot of history there we don't have time to get into this morning. But suffice it to say that some of these Jewish Christians had been living, their families had been living outside of Palestine for generations. Others were newly displaced as a result of some of the persecution that was happening against Christians in the early church. Either way, life outside of Palestine for the Jews was really hard. For most of them, it was filled with a lot of adversity and pain. And on top of it, as Christians, they were experiencing the added suffering and persecution of being a follower of Jesus. As a result, some of them were lapsing into a more superficial form of their faith. Some of them were being lured to to follow the, the world and its system. Some of them were reverting back to a, a shell of Christianity and to Judaism. And so James, the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, writes a letter to them to remind them of the transforming nature of genuine faith. What is real faith like and how does it impact our lives? And so as James begins his letter in verses 2 through 12, he wastes no time in addressing the most significant felt need that they were experiencing in their lives, the issue of trials. Because it was the crucible of trials that was causing some of them to turn away from faithfulness to Jesus. And so we're going to try to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And the main point of this passage could be expressed in this way, and it would be the main point of the sermon, faithfully endure trials, keeping the end in mind. Faithfully endure trials, keeping the end in mind. And if you're taking notes, the passage kind of falls into four sections, which will be the four points of our sermon. And we'll begin in verses 2 through 4 with point number 1, Choose joy in trials. Now, as I said a moment ago, James gets right to the point. And I try to put myself in the shoes of the original recipients. Jewish Christians who were outside of Israel, Palestine, going through all kinds of suffering and adversity. And they hear that the pastor James has written them a letter. Written a letter to be distributed through the community. It's arrived where they are. They open the scroll, and they can't wait to hear this letter. The scroll gets, the letter begins to be read, and there's no warm greeting, no extent, like Paul usually does in his letters. There's the standard greeting, and then James gets right to it. And the first thing he says to these suffering Christians is, My brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, consider it a great joy. I can almost imagine, and they wouldn't have done this, of course, out of respect, but I can almost imagine someone saying, whoa, 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 stop. Could you read that again? What, What did he say? Okay. Whenever you experience trials of various kinds, consider it great joy. 
Now, these original recipients were just like us. They were human beings. Now, certainly they were shaped by their culture, but the underlying emotions that they had were, were like us. There were people who experienced hope and joy and, and, um, and, and happiness, but they also experienced sorrow and grief and pain and, and anger and frustration and uncertainty and anxiety. And so you can imagine as they heard those words, this call to, to consider trials a source or a reason for joy, they might have wondered, is he serious? Now the word consider is a word that isn't focused on our feelings or emotional response. It's a word that means to think or regard something based on weighing and comparing the facts. It's a deliberate and careful judgment that we make in our thinking based on external proof. It's not a subjective term focusing on how we emotionally are feeling. It's a mental assessment. It's an accounting term, really. You could translate it reckon. And so what that means is, and we see this elsewhere in Scripture, James is leaving room for Christians to work through the very real emotional responses we have when we go through hard seasons in life. There's pain, there's suffering, there's sorrow. Jesus himself wept in the context of death and human suffering. What he's saying, though, is even in the midst of the very real pain we can experience as we face trials, there's something that is true about the Christian experience of trials that is so grand and great in its purpose that we can also assess it to be a great joy, a cause for rejoicing. Now, this isn't unique to James. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 13, that, or in 12 and 13, we shouldn't think trials something strange, but we ought to be able to rejoice in them. And Paul said in Romans 5, 3, that we are, can exult in tribulation. And notice also in verse 2, we learn something about the nature of trials as inevitable. He says, whenever you experience trials. I love the way scripture is so real about life in a fallen world. It doesn't try to sugarcoat things and act like everything's going to be great, even as followers of Jesus. Trials are an inescapable reality of life, and they're also very unpredictable. He uses this word, many different kinds of trials. It's, the word literally means many colored so from small trials that are mild irritants all the way to those soul-shaking, life-altering trials that just rock us to the core and everything in between. As we ex experience different types of trials, James says, we can consider them or assess them to be great joy. And so that begs us the question that I asked a little bit earlier, how are we doing in the midst of our trial. Now, it's one thing for us to theologically affirm this truth, but notice the, the Spirit says to us, whenever we experience trials, it's then that we are to count them as joy. It's another thing for us to, when we're in the midst of the fire of the trial, to be able to, with a clear mind, say, as hard as this is, I still assess this to be Great joy. Well, how is that possible? Well, as we said earlier, it's a mental assessment, and it's based on what we know to be true, which is the path of Christian maturity. Notice verse 3. Well, again, verse 2, consider it great joy whenever you experience various trials because, here's why, you know. It's because of what we know to be true, not how we feel in the moment, 
But in the midst of those confusing, hard, challenging feelings that are true for us as human beings, when we face adversity and suffering, we know something to be true that governs and controls how we respond in the midst of the trial. And so what do we know to be true? Well, notice what he says. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And two things to note there. First of all, notice how Paul uses the word trial in verse 2 interchangeably with that little phrase, the testing of your faith. He says, count it joy when you fall into different kinds of trials. He could have said, because you know that trials produce endurance, but instead he replaces it with that little phrase, testing of your faith, because he wants us to know something about the nature of what trials are doing. Trials are a means of testing our faith, and that word means to um, test something so as to demonstrate its authenticity. And so it's like someone found this old coin on a treasure hunt. And this, is an, this person is an expert in the field, and they see this old, dirty, uh, worn-out coin, and they know instantly this is a historical, valuable coin. But to the naked eye, it doesn't look very special. And so they take it, and they put it through the, the fires of however they clean those things up to remove the impurities so that it can be validated. Look, this is authentic. This is real. That's what the word means. So one of the ways that God is using trials in the life of his people is to demonstrate the authenticity of faith, not for God's purposes, because God knows the nature of our faith. We'll get back to that at the end of the sermon in verse 12. But in part as a means of affirming the authenticity of our faith for our good as a means of producing greater endurance. And so That's the main point that he's making here. You know that the trials which are an authentication of your faith are producing endurance in your lives or steadfastness. Endurance simply means, in in the simplest terms possible, not quitting when it's really hard. As we follow Jesus and we face trial and temptation, we might feel like there's reason to quit or stop, but endurance means we keep going. We keep persevering. We keep following Jesus by faith through his grace. That's what it means to endure, to bear up under the affliction and to keep trusting God. Now, think about this. Why does this knowledge that the experience of trials in our life produces endurance, why would that be a cause of great joy? Look at verse 4. And let endurance have its full effect. You see, endurance isn't an end in itself. It's a gracious gift from God that is a means to an end. There is an ultimate result or end point of endurance. We're not enduring just for the sake of, look at me, I'm enduring. We're enduring because there's somewhere we're headed. That's why the main point was keeping the end in mind. This process of endurance is leading us somewhere. Endurance is a means of grace through which God enables us to arrive at the ultimate redemptive purpose that he has for us. That we may be, verse 4, complete and entire, lacking nothing. And so what, Paul, what James is kind of doing is he's, it's like he's setting out scales. And he's saying, okay, on one side of the scale are the trials and the the suffering and the pain and the difficulty and the challenges that we face 
as Christians in the fallen world, not just the same types of trials that everyone faces, although that's included, but also uniquely as we follow Jesus. And then the other side, he's placing the full intended result of endurance. And he says it's not even close. Where we are headed as we continue to follow Jesus is so glorious and so incredible and such a gift of grace that if trials are producing endurance so that I get there, then trials are a source of joy because I need endurance. Left to myself, I'll fall away and quit. I need God's gracious gift of endurance so that I keep following Jesus so in the end I experience its full result, that we may be complete and entire, lacking in nothing. Now, when I think about this passage, I can't help but think about Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn over there. And I know your pastor is going to be there, but it's probably going to be a while, right? I think he just finished up chapter 2. And Rob, if you're listening, it'll be a year or so, so don't be mad at me. Romans chapter 8, the whole context of Romans 8 is suffering in the Christian experience of pain and loss. It's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, but the whole context is, starting in verse 17, is that we suffer with Jesus so that we may also be glorified with Him. And then he says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not even worth comparing with what's coming. And so then you jump down to verse 28, and of course this very familiar passage, we know that all things, and the all things includes the in the context especially the suffering and affliction that we experience as we follow Jesus in a fallen world, all things are working together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. So those who have experienced the grace of God in the gospel and have come to faith in Jesus, God is sovereignly working all things together for their good, Verse 29 explains what that good is for. Here's how we know that verse 28 is true. For those he foreknew, everyone in the category of being someone that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word predestined simply means to mark out the boundaries beforehand. So everyone whom God foreknew, he has marked out the boundaries of their life beforehand to ensure that this great redemptive purpose is accomplished in their lives. And that great ultimate redemptive purpose is that we will be restored to what we were created to be as human beings, image bearers of God. But in this instance, we're being recreated after the image of Christ. And one day we are going to be presented in completely conformed to the beautiful, shining image of Jesus. And then look at verse 29. So that He, Jesus, will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus will be exalted in our midst as His brothers and sisters, and we will be like Him. This is where God is bringing us. This is the great redemptive purpose that He's working out. And so you see the similar language in James 1, verse 4, that God is using trials to produce, as a means of grace to produce greater endurance. As we go through trials, the Spirit is strengthening our faith, authenticating its genuineness, and creating within us greater depths of endurance. Kind of like you know, working out, right? If I worked out tomorrow, 
It's been so long since I've worked out that I tell you that that Tuesday I'd probably be, be barely be able to lift my arm up. My arms and upper body would be so torn up and sore. I've been there, trust me. Right? But if I kept going, if I went back the next day and I could barely lift the bar, but I kept going, and then I went back again, little by little, in the pain of the workout, as my muscles are being broken down but rebuilding, something's happening. My body is developing greater levels of endurance, even in the midst of the pain of the workout. And if I endure and keep going, little by little, I'll get stronger and have greater endurance, and I'll achieve whatever my goal is. And that's what God is saying about trials. As he sovereignly brings adversity into our lives, he's using it as a means of strengthening our faith and growing our endurance. So that as we continue to follow him in this world and face other things and harder things, we have greater levels of endurance and capacity to continue to follow him. It's a means of God's grace to us. But the end result, the full result is Complete conformity to the image of Jesus. Now, there's a sense in which this is happening temporally here on earth. So little by little, as we follow Jesus, the Spirit of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is transforming us from glory to glory, increasingly into the image of Jesus. But let's be honest. As we follow him in this broken world, it's, it's never going to be what we're going to be. We're broken. We're sinners. We struggle. We, the, the righteous man falls seven times, which is a number of completion, over and over again. And we get up and we stumble forward and we say, I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm going to keep going. I'm confessing. I'm, I'm seeking forgiveness and I'm moving forward. Over and over again this happens. But we keep following Jesus. And so the Spirit is progressively making us more like Jesus. But at the same time, we're not going to experience it in fullness until that day that we sang about earlier. It's what John said in 1 John 3. We're not yet what we will be, but one day when we see him, we will be like him. For we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has that hope in him is purifying himself even as he is pure. And that's why Paul describes his ministry in Colossians 1 and Galatians as as striving mightily to present every man mature in Christ. We tend to have too temporal a view of the Christian experience here. We tend, to, we tend to be driven and motivated too much by the here and now rather than by where we're ultimately headed. That doesn't mean we don't care about the here and now and we don't strive to work to bring God's kingdom more evident in this human condition, but it means ultimately what needs to drive us and what Paul says the full effect of trials and endurance is, is that day when we are like Christ. So God allows different kinds of trials in our lives because he's intending us to be complete, not lacking in anything. And the different trials are different means of grace to increasingly make us more like his son, which is part of his redemptive grace in our lives. Now, one of the things that we feel like we're lacking in the midst of trials at least in my case, is wisdom. The wisdom to have God's perspective on trial. Because let's face it, two through four sounds great, but when we're in the midst of the pain and suffering and affliction and temptation, it's not easy to stop and say, with tears coming down our face because of the pain or the uncertainty, as hard as this is, God, thank you. I know, I rejoice because you're using this for redemptive purposes in my life. Thank you. It's hard to do that. 
In the midst of trial, we tend to turn inward and focus on ourselves and our pain and our suffering and why me and how do I get out of this? That tends to be the human response. And so what we often lack in trial is the ability to view that child trial from God's perspective, which is what wisdom is. And so the second point in our text, and we're going to move quickly through these next two points, is seek wisdom in your trials. What an incredible promise he gives to us in verse 5. If any of you find that you are lacking wisdom, if any, any one of you, regardless of where you are in life, discover I'm not seeing this from God's perspective, what can you do? Well, number one, seek wisdom from God. It's a command in the original. It's literally be asking of God. God so wants his people to have his lens on life, to view life from his perspective, that he literally commands us to seek wisdom from him in the midst of our trials. We should seek wisdom all the time, but in the context especially, it's in the midst of trials, and I think even more particularly, he's especially talking about, since wisdom in the wisdom literature, which James is considered the wisdom literature of the New Testament, wisdom literature, really wisdom is God's perspective on life and living accordingly, I think he's especially talking about having God's perspective on trials. The ability to see trials as a good thing in verse 4 to allow trials to have this work in our life, not to resist what God is doing, but to submit to it in verse 4. And so he says, ask God. And he says, keep asking God. As, lo- as often as you sense the need for wisdom, ask him. God, I need your perspective. I need the grace of your wisdom to help me to see this through your lens rather than my own lens or the lens of my feelings or emotions, which can be so fickle. Help me to see this through your eyes. As often as you feel that need, go to him and ask him. Now, as a parent, in some of my worst moments, which I have plenty as a parent, when one of my children is asking me over and over again for something, I, of course, always very patiently Look at them and say, I know you've asked me 15 times in the last minute, but that's okay. No, sometimes I get very impatient. Say, you've already asked me. I've answered that question. Do you realize that God here is saying one one of the invitations to come to him and ask for wisdom is because God is not like that with us. It says there's two reasons that God gives. Number one, The reason we can ask for wisdom at all times from God is because, number one, God is a generous God. The very heart of who he is is giving and loving and generous. God delights in displaying the glory of who he is by allowing all that he is to overflow in generosity to others. And so this is the very heart of God. He loves and delights to give. And so as we think we need wisdom, we come to God and he says, yes, I want to give to you. And it says, secondly, that he never will revile us, the old language says, or he gives generously and ungrudgingly, which means he will never scold us for coming, like like I might do as a dad. He'll never say, haven't you asked enough? I've got seven billion people in the world I'm I'm governing here. No, he says he will never do that to his children. You see, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, God's throne is now a throne of grace upon which he sits, beckoning us to come to him to seek grace in our time of need. It's a throne of undeserved favor. 
that he's willing to lavish upon his children. And so when we find ourselves in time of need, he says, come to my throne of grace. Ask me for, in this case, wisdom. I will not revile you. I will not condemn you for coming. I will give to you. Notice the promise. It shall be given to him. God will always give you the wisdom you need. And, and you know, sometimes we get stuck waiting for like a zap of knowledge. And sometimes God disrupts our sense of peace. But what, what God's really calling us to do is ask him for wisdom and trust that he's going to give us the wisdom that we're asking for. Especially as we're seeking it through word, through, through community of Christians who are speaking the word into our lives. But notice there is one condition here. Let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now, honestly, that's a scary passage to me. Because on the surface, I read that and think, oh no, if I ask God for something, in this case wisdom, and have any sliver of doubt at all, any little bit of wavering, God's not going to give it to me. Let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord. I can't think of a time where probably a prayer of mine isn't mingled with some form of doubt. So where does that leave us? I used to teach it that way. I used to teach, hey, when we come to God, don't be double-minded. If you're asking God for wisdom, believe 100% that he's going to give it to you. Now, we should have faith that God's going to give us what he's promised. But that's not what James is talking about here. The whole point of the book of James is the nature of authentic faith. What does it mean to possess true faith in Jesus? And so when he says, ask in faith, nothing wavering, he's talking about ask as a person of authentic faith in contrast to the double-minded in verse 7 and 8. That's the contrast. The person who has authentic faith or the person who's double-minded. The double-mindedness isn't a double-mindedness in the sense of I'm asking, but I'm not sure I believe you're going to give it to me, God. I'm, I'm a little worried. He defines it over, James defines it for us in chapter 4. If you look over in James 4, verse 1, what is the source of wars and fightings among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. Catch this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't have because you are asking with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So similar to chapter 1-5, ask wisdom, but some of you won't receive it. Here he says, some of you are asking but not receiving because your motives are all wrong. Why is that? Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts. Here's that phrase, you double-minded. And so James defines what he means by double-minded in the book of James here in chapter 4 as someone who has some outward profession of faith in Jesus but really is living for and pursuing the things of the world which makes him at hostility with God. He's double-minded. I'm a follower of Jesus and yet I really want those things that are opposed to the way of Jesus. That's the double-minded he's referring to back in chapter 1. It's the one who would say, Lord, I want wisdom, I'll ask for wisdom, but really, I want the world. 
I don't really want your perspective on life. My, my life is showing that. In this crunch trial, I might want your help, but in all, most of life, I really don't want your perspective. He's double-minded. And so this is a beautiful promise to those who by grace have experienced the gospel and have God has graciously enabled us to believe in Jesus and follow him. And though we might be weak in our request at times, we come to God and say, oh God, I need wisdom in the midst of this trial to view it from your perspective and to be able to rejoice because I know what really matters is not so much instant relief from this trial, but me to persevere and grow in my endurance so that I experience the full result of it, which is full conformity to the image of Jesus one day. So seek wisdom in trials, and God will grant it to you. Seek it as often as you need it, and God will lavish it upon you. Isn't Jesus amazing what Jesus said in the Gospels when he said, you guys are evil fathers. You're sinners. And yet when your child comes to you and asks for something good and that he needs, you, you, you will give it to him. If you will do that, how much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to his children, including the gift of wisdom? Romans 8.32 says that, uh, that, that since God hasn't spared his Son on our behalf, but the Father actually delivered up his Son so that we could be rescued from sin and brought into the family of God, if God has done that for us, how will he not with Jesus also give us everything we need in the context of Romans 8 to persevere in the midst of suffering and follow him? He'll give you everything you need. Ask, ask. Well, verses 9 through 11, we discover one of the tests and the trials that we face in an example of how to respond from God's perspective. And so we've seen, number one, choose joy in our trials. Number two, seek wisdom in our trials. Number three, celebrate your true identity in your trials. Look at verse 9. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich, assumption brother, boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So there were some Jewish Christians in the dispersion who had established themselves over generations and had wealth. Most of them hadn't, and most of them were in the lower end of the social spectrum, but some of them are. So James addresses both groups as an example of how to think about their identity in a fallen world in the midst of trial. And he says there's unique temptations to both conditions. For those of us who aren't much in the world's eyes, aren't known, aren't famous, don't have millions in the bank account to set us up for life, maybe are living paycheck to paycheck or worse, for those of us, it's easy in the midst of our trial to look to a change in circumstances as the solution. If only, and to look around at those who have it better and think, now again, there's nothing wrong with, with seeking to make changes and, and, and find solutions that will help us in a temporal sense, right? But what he's saying is the most important thing for us in the midst of trial, if we are a brother of humble circumstance, is that we boast in the fact that 
What's really important about us is who we are in Christ and the fact that in Jesus we have been exalted. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. And this is in the context of James exhorting the church not to show partiality for the rich against the poor. Listen, my brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? And catch this, heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. When a person comes to faith in Christ and experiences God's grace through the gospel, God exalts that person in Christ so that we are spiritually with Christ in the heavenlies and everything that God has promised His eternally beloved Son, He has promised to us. We are co-heirs with Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what our earthly status is at one level, it doesn't mean, again, that, there, that we shouldn't think about systemic injustices and stuff like that in this world and be concerned about those things. But it means in the midst of figuring all that stuff out, the brother of low degree rejoices remembering what's really important about me is that I am exalted in Christ, though I may be low here on earth. But the rich, on the other hand... His source of joy in trial shouldn't be dependence on his wealth and his status and the power he has and the resources and privilege he has, but rather the fact that God humbled him. Because Jesus said it's hard for a rich man or woman to enter into the kingdom because it's hard for them to see their need of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God, the spiritually impoverished, the one who realized, I might have a lot in my bank account, but I am spiritually bankrupt. And unless I have a righteousness outside myself that's declared to me, I am lost. Oh God, save me. That's the heart of a person who is changed by God's grace and receives the kingdom of God. And so the rich is to celebrate and rejoice, not in his power, but in the fact that God has graciously humbled him to see his need. And as a result, he too has an inheritance. Don't you love how God levels the playing field here? Whether you're a powerful CEO with billions of dollars, or whether you're working for the CEO's company as a doorman, or whether you're homeless and have, you know, are on public assistance. In Christ, what, what's true is that our identity is in Him. And together, we find our and celebrate our identity and what really matters as being His people, His brothers and sisters adopted into the family. Now look at verse 12 as the text wraps up here. And he really is going to come full circle Back to the themes introduced in verses 2 through 4. So verses 2 through 4, choose joy in your trials, knowing that God is using trials to produce endurance. And the reason that's such a cause for celebration is because we desperately need this gift of grace from God called endurance that will bring us through trial and temptation in this world to the full result, which is to be presented like Christ forever. But we need wisdom to think that way, and so seek wisdom in your trials. And we need to remember in the midst of our trials that what's most important about us is our identity in Jesus, which isn't always easy. And so he comes back to this theme, and the last point, verse 12, is simply, don't quit. Don't quit. I used to run, and when I began running, notice I talk about I used to work out, I used to run, something's going on here, I need to rectify. Um, 
we had a runner in our church who was a world-class marathoner. She actually was a pioneer in women's marathoning and, and one broke records, etc. So she told me when I started, don't worry about miles, running like five miles or ten miles. Just set a time goal. Start with ten minutes or fifteen minutes or whatever and just run. And then once you hit that goal, then expand it. So I thought it was a good idea, so that's what I did. Now, I didn't realize at the time I had asthma. That would have been nice to know, right? So no matter what goal I got to, there was a point where everything in my body screamed, stop. My legs were heavy. My lungs were burning. A little bit of a wheeze. I'm, I'm tired. My system's, right? And I knew if I stopped, instant relief, pretty much. But I also had this goal of being in shape and increasing my time and, and getting to the place where I could run longer and better and be more healthy. So imagine if there was another runner running with me, and that runner was as good or better than me and willing to keep pace with me. And as that runner saw me kind of lagging and could see in my eyes that I'm, I'm looking off to the side thinking, where can I stop? That runner says, hey, don't stop. Remember the goal. It'll be worth it. Only five more minutes. You can do it. Don't quit. Keep running. Would that make a difference? Yeah. That's what James is doing here. He's like the runner coming alongside of us and saying, don't quit. Remember, the one who endures trials is blessed. This is a prophetic utterance in the line in the history of the, the, the prophets. It's a promise of God's undeserved favor on someone. The person who keeps running is the recipient of God's undeserved favor or blessing because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The phrase, when he has stood the test, is literally, blessed is the one who endures trials because having been tested. It's kind of a look ahead at the end. When a person has endured and hasn't quit, and though he could have had instant relief or the path would have been easier by stopping and turning away, in the end they didn't. By God's grace, they persevered. And in persevering now, the passage says you've having stood the test. That word test is that idea of having demonstrated the authenticity of faith they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a lot of themes that kind of come together in verse 12 as James says, don't quit. You don't want to stop because the one who doesn't quit but keeps going, having demonstrated the authenticity of their faith because they kept believing, they will receive this crown. But notice it's promised to those who love them. So the one who endures, endures because they love Jesus. But we love Jesus only why? Why do we love Jesus? Because he first loved us. God and his grace through the person of Jesus extended his love to us, entered into our bro brokenness, identified with us. And by the way, as we think about seeking God's grace, we have a high priest who understands our weakness. He, he understands the pain of adversity in a fallen world because he experienced it. He entered into it in order to bring us to a place where we would see, understand, and believe the gospel. He loved us, and in response, those who've experienced that can do nothing but love him. And out of love for him, we say, "Why? how could I turn away? I love him. I can't turn away. This isn't because we are somehow preserving our own faith through our own effort. Look, God saved me, and now I'm going to 
you know, gear up and, and preserve myself. No, remember, this is a gift of God's grace to us through which we continue to love Him and follow Him. And those who, and what's the sign that we're experiencing God's gift of grace, of perseverance? We persevere. It's God's gift, but the sign that we have it is we, we're, we keep following Jesus. And so, he says, to those who love him, God has made a promise. Promise is such a key word in the scripture. The promise is the crown of life. The crown which is eternal life in the very presence of God as his people achieving and arriving at the great redemptive purpose that God has for us to create a people who reflect his glory as trophies of God's grace forever and among whom the Son, the eternal Son, is exalted to receive all the praise and worship as the Lamb. This is why we endure. Most of you are familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, right? Have you read that book? It's the second greatest seller of all time. At least it was last time I checked. Story of a man named Christian who's living in the city of destruction. And the Lord opens his eyes through the preaching of the evangelist to his need to escape this city. There's a celestial city, so much more beautiful. And so he begins the journey toward that celestial city. And the book is really the story of his journey from that city of destruction to that city. And soon after his journey begins, a, man, a couple of men catch up to him, one of them whose name is Pliable. And he hears about where Christian is going and he says, I want to go there too. So Pliable joins them on the journey, but very quickly, what happens to them? They fall into what? The slough of despond. And it's a miry, muddy, mucky pit that represents trial and adversity that we fall into. And Pliable's like, what's going on? And he struggles and he gets out. And Pliable says, if this is the way the journey's going to be, forget it. He didn't keep going. He went back to the city of destruction because it was too hard. Christian, though, a man named Help came along and helped Christian out, and Christian said, I'm going to keep going. And the journey continues describing the twists and turns of the path to the celestial city and dangers and battles and the valley of the shadow of death and the fight against Apollyon. And along the way, the burden of sin that he had on his back is removed at the cross, and he gets all the way towards the end. And by this point, he's traveling with Faithful, and Faithful and he come across a shortcut. And Christian has been so persistent all the way, but now he's worn down by the trials. And he sees this shortcut, and Christian says, hey, maybe we should take the shortcut. And Faithful's like, I don't think it's a good idea. But Christian kind of persists, and so they take the shortcut. And they end up, the shortcut has led them to the land of the giant despair. And the giant despair catches them and puts them in Doubting Castle, where they're imprisoned. And they're there for a period of time, and they're not eating, and they're weak, and they're depressed, and they're discouraged, and they're, but they're still alive. And so the giant's wife, whose name is Diffidence, says, are they still alive? Go pressure them to take their own lives. And so he comes down, and the giant shows them a big pile of bones. He says, you know what these bones are? These are travelers just like you who thought they would make it, but this is where they ended up. Why bother? And so Christian is thinking, you know what? He's right. Why bother? This is our end. Christian. The, the despair and the trial and the d- discouragement of the journey got him to the point of giving up. Faithful speaks words of grace to Christian. And just after the words of grace, Christian remembers that at the beginning of his journey, someone had given him something. 
a key. And you know what the name of the key was? Promise. And he said, oh, I forgot I had this promise. I wonder if this key will get us out of this dungeon in Doubting Castle. And so they click the gate in the cell, and it opens up. And then they say, well, I wonder if this will open the door to the castle and let us escape. And they walk to the door, and lo and behold, the key opens the door. And they're able to flee the land of giant despair in Doubting Castle and continue the journey. And spoiler alert, Christian makes it. But the promise, the key represents Jesus and all that God, that God has given us in him. Scripture says that all the promises of God in Christ are yes. And the passage says in Romans, excuse me, James 1.12, God has promised life eternal. And the reason he has promised that is because of the work of Christ who has purchased it for us. It's a promise. It is as certain as the seat you're sitting in today for those who love God and belong to him. This promise is in our future. So believe that promise and keep following. This is why we can and must persevere. We must endure together. Despite each other's weaknesses, despite the troubles and trials we face, despite the disappointments we have as we journey with fellow pilgrims who are broken just like us, we don't want anyone not to make it. Because one day, we look around at one another, one day we will all be together receiving from God this gift of eternal life, the fulfillment of the promise. One day we will together experience the culmination of God's redemptive purposes for us to his glory and for our eternal good. We will be like our older brother, eternal trophies of God's grace in Jesus. Undeserved favor shining for all to see. The beauty of Jesus exalted in our midst. This is the promise. Don't quit. Keep going. In fact, count it all joy when you fall into different kinds of trials because in a dramatic twist of grace, the very thing that we would think would cause us to stumble and turn away, God is actually using to preserve us and help us endure. May God do that in our midst. Father, thank you so much for Christ and the promise that is ours in him. We confess our weakness in ourselves. How many times would I stop and stumble and quit and give up? We praise you for the gift of endurance that you give to us. And we ask for wisdom to recognize your grace working in and through trials to produce greater endurance. Give us the strength not to quit. Give us the faith to believe and trust the promise that is ours in Christ. And I pray that everyone in this room who is following Jesus will persevere by your grace to the end. And together one day we will celebrate and rejoice together as trophies of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.